Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. Welcome to another episode of the Karen Commons. We are very pleased today. I'm very pleased to have with us in the studio uh, one of our um, professors at the university, Dr. Matt Miller, is the clinical director of CCCRD. He is a New Jersey licensed psychologist and is also, as I mentioned, a professor, and he's also chair of the graduate counseling department here at the university. Matt received a PsyD in clinical psychology from Immaculata University. In addition, he holds an MA in human services psychology from LaSalle and a BA from Franklin and Marshall College. Matt has been a Christian counselor since 1997 in both private practice and at community mental health centers and works with children, adolescents, and adults at all levels. And Matt is married to Bethany and has two children. So thanks for coming by today to have a conversation, Matt. Oh, thank you for having me. Our subject, I, I held that even till this time. What is our subject here? Of all the many things <laughs> we could discuss, I have been wanting to talk with Matt for some time now about anxiety. So perhaps saying that I wanted to talk to a uh, counselor for some time about anxiety may sound as if um, it's an issue that I myself deal with. And certainly, I think all of us uh, would say that there's some level at which anxiety is a factor. I'm, I'm assuming that will come out in our conversation. But part of this is um, we've uh, I've mentioned that in the uh, the evolution, if you will, of the the podcast that we've been doing, we wanted to just kind of stick a microphone in front of some individuals at the university and have the chance to have a conversation, a very free form conversation uh, around a particular topic. And that's what we're here to do today. So you'll uh, hear us moving through, I'm sure, a variety of angles and um, ways of approaching this. But um, again, it's something that I'm, I'm really excited to sit down and, and talk about. So as a counselor, how do you help people to understand even the term anxiety? And if I could add already, a kind of caveat on a question might be, has the definition of anxiety changed over time officially or unofficially? So why don't we start off our conversation with that? Okay, yeah. So I would say one way of trying to understand anxiety is to think about it in terms of the comparing it to fear. Um, so fear is an actual response to a direct threat. Um, so humans have fear responses. Animals have fear responses. Uh, among the many things that separate us from cats uh, is the ability to uh, think about the future. So anxiety is actually a response to a possible negative outcome ahead. So we all have thoughts about our future and whether these things are going to go well, whether it's I'm going to ask my girlfriend to marry me, and um, is that going to go well? Is it not going to go well? The classic, you know, uh, the guy who asks the girl out for the prom and calls her up and says, you don't want to go to the prom with me, do you? Mm -hmm. That's He's already anticipating a negative response, even in the, the way that he's asking the question. And his way of asking the question is self-protective because he's expecting a negative res response. So I'm going to basically say, you don't want to go with me, and, you know, as opposed to do you want to go to the prom with me, right? So um, so when you think about anxiety and think about the future, so future thinking, uh, and we'll talk about COVID stuff, that's one of, the, one of the difficulties throughout this whole pandemic is that we have, as, a, as human beings, done less future thinking 
um, than we normally would. I'm talking in terms of planning for vacations, planning for weddings. We are constantly, as human beings, planning for things. And one of the things that COVID, it's one of the kind of more insidious things that COVID has done to us is it's, hey, you can plan. Um, but, and it's not like when it says, you know, in, in scripture, who are you to, to plan? Who are you to say tomorrow we're going to go here and you're but a vapor? It's not, it doesn't seem to be that. It's not God saying, hey, you, my plans are not your plans. It's really kind of this insidious virus that is taking our plans away from us to the point where I've talked to a lot of people who haven't been on vacation with their family in two, two and a half years, aren't planning anything. Uh, people got married in front of two people, you know, all kinds of things that have impacted that. So future thinking is natural for us. Um, sometimes when we future think, we think of p potential you know, negative outcomes. And so really there's a couple of questions that kind of lead to anxiety. One is, what will I face in the future? And the second is, can I handle it? So whatever is coming my way, can I handle it? Um, there, there was a movie by Quentin Tarantino uh, with Brad Pitt where he plays a, a soldier in World War II. And in one, one part of the movie, he um, does something to this SS officer and the SS officer says, you know, I made a deal with the allies. They're going to execute you for this. They're going to kill you. You know, I had a deal. And, and Brad Pitt goes, nah, probably chewed out. <laughs> I've been chewed out before, right? He has no, he said, well, that might happen. They might be mad at him, but he has no fear of it. He thinks whatever comes his way, kind of he can handle it. And so that whatever comes our way, whether we can handle it, that's where even our values come in. And one of the things we'll talk about this probably more as we go along, but even as we think about things that could could happen in the future that could be negative, uh, the value we place in those things also contributes to our level of anxiety. And so that's kind of the, the equation. Um, in terms of whether anxiety has changed, I think it's I think it's become more socially acceptable, which is good in, in a lot of ways. I think um, I see this in sports. You'll see this a lot. You know, we've, we've seen a couple instances this past year where athletes had to pull themselves out of competitions due to really fairly significant levels of anxiety. I think the gymnast, Simone right, Biles, right. right? And, you know, when you think about it, if you're not in the proper headspace, if you're really anxious in that moment, you're really struggling, and, and you're going to jump off of a, a horse and you're supposed to land, I mean, that could cause serious injury. And so I think we've moved to a direction of recognizing there's a lot of sports psychology in terms of how to help people with anxious thoughts. So I think it's become more socially acceptable. So I think more people are willing to kind of, in a sense, come out of the shadows and say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this a little bit. Um, but like anything else, kind of like the word depression, sometimes it loses all meaning. So there's a clinical way of looking at depression, and then there's kind of, hey, I feel depressed today, meaning I'm having a sad day. And those aren't the exact same thing, but in our society, often words tend to lose all meaning. And it reminds me of that scene in uh, uh, Princess Bride, where the guy keeps saying inconceivable, yeah. and the other guy goes, I, this word you keep on using, I do not think it means what you think it means, right? And so, um, you know, I think there's a lot of times where words get kind of misused in society to the point that they, they really kind of lose all meaning. And I think anxiety is becoming one of those in some ways. Right, right. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, well, it, it certainly kicks it off. It's You've moved in uh, so many interesting directions. I'm just trying to think which one to move. I mean, maybe let's stay with where you just ended there. 
I hear a lot of younger people, including mm -hmm. um, you know teens, maybe even preteens, uh, college students, and certainly adults trafficking in kind of I, I don't know what I would even call it, but the language of anxiety and you know using words like trigger and kind of making that part of their everyday vernacular you know well I, well that's my you know that's a trigger that i experience which it seems like some of these terms are things that maybe would have been more uh, in the realm of psychology and counseling in the past but mm -hmm. they're kind of making their way into the vernacular and in some ways it's it just this is just anecdotal but it seems like it's not so much that they are learning those terms um, and just sort of using them, but really ascribing almost self-diagnosing in many ways. And they're using a lot of those terms and they're seeing them probably in, in the case of a lot of younger people on social mm -hmm. media and through TikToks and other places. And, and I know you work with people at all age levels. So is that, um, is, it, is it the case that they are picking up on that from peers? Do you think that they are, is it just that more people are, quote, in therapy now, and so they're becoming uh, more comfortable with that? So how, how has that happened, that the language has become so much more infused with a lot of talk of, I, I think, you know, growing up, we had very few terms, mm -hmm. I think, that we were throwing around that were psychological in nature. And if we were, it wasn't that we were identifying those with ourselves, except for a select few who perhaps were actually in therapy and, and, and in some mm -hmm. cases maybe were identified clin clinically. Yeah, I, I think it's, in some ways, I think separating out kind of the identifying it to some extent from what we then do with it. I think there are good things about connecting and identifying and saying, hey, my lived experience is similar to this person who's now talking about it on TikTok. And I don't need, because, you know, one of the things that Jesus came to do, and if you look at the, one of my favorite passages is the woman at the well, he came to remove her shame. You know, when he, when she says, he says, you know, bring me your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, I know you've had five husbands and the man you're living with isn't your husband. He, he didn't say that to, to judge her or to shame her. He actually said, I want to just make sure we, we're talking about the same thing here. You don't have to hide anything from me. And the proof of that is at the end of that passage where she goes back to all these townspeople that she's hiding from and says, come, I'm going to show you someone who told me everything I ever did. And not like, let's go get the pitchforks and kill him. But like, this is a wonderful thing that he accepted me. So I think on the one level, when we find those connections, and I think that's one of the great things about the internet and one of the great things about social media is, is that. So for example, you know, my wife grew up in, uh, in Medford, New Jersey, uh, actually Mount, more Mount Laurel. She went to a high school, Lenape High School. And because the church that she went to really didn't pull from people from that community, she didn't know if there were any other Christians at that school. Today, she would, she would know like they're through either through Instagram or Facebook or other places, she would be connecting with people on a different level where she would find out, oh, that, and that's a great thing. We would say, of course, that's fantastic if you could find other Christians. Well, that's true of anything. We can find other people who are doing the same thing that we're doing. It could be either healthy or unhealthy. I think identifying with somebody and saying, okay, here's this person, an athlete or somebody else who's come out and said, hey, I struggle with anxiety and I identify with that, that that's great. On the one hand, that's one part of the puzzle. What we do with it from that point, and I think you're kind of touching on this idea of, hey, I'm using this terminology, I'm being triggered, 
and the terminology in some ways, and again, I'm going to be a little not terribly artful in this description, yeah, but it feels like now that I'm being triggered, you need to change. The other needs to change. And so uh, I am not a sociologist, so I do play one on TV. Um, I feel like in our country, and right now I'm going through listening and reading all the biographies of like biographies of all the presidents. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I feel like we've moved in our country from a kind of rugged individualism to a more entitled individualism. Um, and so I am entitled to never be offended. I'm entitled to all of these things. And so if I'm feeling triggered, it seems like sometimes the default is that the other person needs to act or change rather than I also need to work on myself. And I think that's where I feel like those things are dovetailing where we might see some of the negatives of that. And that what ends up happening is we aren't developing, I think kind of embedded in your question is we're not helping, we're potentially not helping people develop resilience uh, and the ability to face things in their life. Because the way that we know, just like that Brad Pitt comment, the way that we know that we can face the future is what we've, what we've experienced in the past. Right. That's one way that we know, hey, I can face this because, you know, for example, I lost my dad a, a few years ago. I think something in my heart broke on that day that will never be healed probably on this side of heaven. I mean, just, I don't think there can, I don't think it can be. And I didn't know, I never lost a dad before. How am I gonna cope with losing my dad? And there is no perfect way to do that. But I had lost before. And my experience of walking through loss um, in my own life of other relatives, grandparents and other people that I knew and also walking other people through loss helped me to feel like I could, even though I didn't know exactly how I was going to make it happen, you know, how God, what God was going to do in that process, I had confidence that I could make it through it. And I think that's one of the things we're struggling with is, a, is some crisis of confidence as to whether we can make it through some of these things. Does that yeah, make sense? It does. Yeah. What, <clears throat> where does that crisis of confidence come from? Well, I mean, I think ultimately, like I said, I think it's our ability... And if you look at this from, from a Christian and a secular point of view, so from a secular point of view, uh, our ability to face whatever comes our way uh, is often based on our uh, evaluation of our abilities and also past experiences. So I played a lot of sports. I played baseball in college. And so like my, my ability to uh, face this pitcher and, and their fastball is based on what I think my actual abilities are, and what have I experienced before? Well, I, I faced a guy with a faster fastball, or I faced, you know, so that's kind of embedded in that. So I think there's an experiential piece where, as we experience life and learn to cope with lots of different things and eventualities, that gives us confidence when we move forward and face new things. I think that's one area, and actually, I would say. I, mean, I have lots of thoughts about this, but there, but even I think sometimes we become so protective of our kids. And actually, you know, uh, Dr. Black, one of the one of my one of the mm -hmm. faculty here, we have this conversation regularly, and he talks about the idea that parenting. We often think about parenting as providing and protecting, and his view is if we think of parenting as more of a discipleship relationship rather than a providing and a protecting relationship. In a discipleship relationship, we will, one, be more transparent about the experiences that we've had. Two, we'll also give opportunities and walk with our kids through things 
for them to, to face things rather than we, we kind of see every opportunity as our job is to protect. And if our job is to protect and provide, where at what point does that become a negative place? And then in some ways, and I'm going to go, I mean, I'm going all over the place. Yeah, that's okay. Go in on. some ways, how are we as parents dealing with our own anxiety in how we parent? And is, is the way that we're coping with our own anxiety about the fear of our kids' futures, how is that? So, for example, if you were bullied in school, I'm not saying bullying is ever right. I mean, bullying really is abuse. But if you were bullied, there are the steps that you might take to avoid your child being bullied could either protect them and help them to grow or it could actually hinder their growth, depending on the situation. I, you know, there's different ways you would look at that. So it's, it kind of runs through all of that. And I think that's where we're not developing that level of resilience in our kids uh, that they would need to know that they can face things that come their way. Right, right. Anecdotally, it seems as if I'm ta just talking with a lot of people who have children and deal with children through work. The range of experience that kids are having may be uh, contracting a little bit. Um, in many cases, because of technology, they have the opportunity to sit in front of a screen and be, quote unquote, taken mm -hmm. to so many different places. And so there's this virtual experience and you can experience all kinds of things virtually. So, you know, it seems like that in some cases there are fewer experiences that young people especially are having. And therefore that diminishes the number of experiences to prepare them to deal with anxiety about the future experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that, do you think is that possible that yeah. in the way society is now shifting, mm -hmm. you know, it's like there are fewer operations, you have, if, if parents are, are sort of protecting the kids more from mm -hmm. those negative experiences, then they don't have those negative experiences. And that's not to say that all those experiences are ones we would want to have, but nevertheless, they train people mm -hmm. to this kind of, uh, uh, you know, imbued um, ability to deal with the future mm -hmm. uh, because of what has happened in the past. So if you shrink the number of experiences and the number of things people are exposed to and the number of things that people do, it seems more likely that they're going to have more anxiety because they have fewer things to refer back to mm -hmm. to help them understand the world around them. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, and I'll say some things here that are probably fairly provocative, um, but I would be That's why we're certainly happy to have a deeper conversation <laughs> yeah. with anybody, who would, anybody who would listen to yeah. this. So I, I've read a number of books. I love history. So I've read a number of books about uh, turn of the century New York. I'm talking about 19th to the 20th, not 20th to the 21st, but 19th to 20th century. And um, to say that the world is a less safe place today to grow up in than it was then uh, is, is wrong, factually wrong. Uh, we're talking hot and cold running disease. We're talking ur urine and feces running through the streets, child labor. Talk about child sex trafficking, rampant child sex trafficking. So there was actually a woman who wrote a book a few years ago basically saying what you're talking about, that we really need to let our kids experience more life, play more, uh, be out with other kids. And it was interesting. She was being interviewed by Matt Lauer. So it, I, that is interesting. Right. She's being interviewed by Matt Lauer, mm -hmm. who has himself then proven to be a bit of a sexual predator, according to reports. Right. And he said to her, wait a minute, the world isn't safe. I have this app on my phone that has these red dots in the community where there are registered sex offenders. He was saying that. He was saying that to her, that the world is not safe. And she said, 
there were sex offenders 30 years ago. You just didn't have a phone and an app to show you where they were. And so they were there, but they weren't. But, we, you know, in some ways we now think of, OK, well, because they're there and we know they're there, that they weren't there before. That's that's a fallacy that they weren't there before they were. Another thing that's happened, I think, just through so through the Internet, um, social media is, uh, you know, when my parents were growing up back in the in the 30s, terrible things happened in the state of Washington, but they didn't hear about them in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So now all news is local. Um, there was a story the other day, a horrific story about this young man who was killed on a in an ice hockey game where the guy, the a player's skate went across his neck by accident. Um, that's national news. Um, it's tragic and significant, but it becomes national news. And then parents can then take that information and say, I will never let my kid play hockey. Now, that's a parent's decision. But uh, the reason why that is news is because it's so rare. You know, it, we... We don't have news stories that say hundreds of planes landed at Philadelphia International Airport today. Right. Because it's not news. It's news when something goes wrong. And so we end up kind of looking at it from, a, I think, a false point of view where we start to think of those things as being more likely. So, so one of the reasons why we struggle with anxiety is anxiety in many cases also, and it's something I explain to my clients, is confusing the possible with the probable. So we're sitting inside a building today. It's conceivable that a bus could drive through this door and kill the two of us. I've never seen a bus actually in the parking lot here at Cairn. Right. Um, if it's possible, it's not terribly likely. If I thought it was likely, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. And so I think sometimes because we see things in the news, we confuse possible with probable the more we see it the more we think it's likely, and then we start making life decisions based on it. When the reality is, and I have lots of stories about this, the news media is there <clears throat> often to get ratings rather than really to, to, to talk about what is actually news. Um, as a quick example, I have friends who live in Africa. There are civil wars and like real things going on in Africa, like real life things that are going on in Africa that, are, that really should warrant our attention. Um, but we don't see any of those things on the news in this country. There are other countries that put those things on, BBC, but we see what gets ratings in this country, and our news media has determined that a civil war in Africa just does not get ratings, so we're not going to, we're, we're not going to put it on. It doesn't mean it's not news. It just means it's not getting ratings. And so then what we see then influences our behavior. That's, that's ultimately kind of how I see that connection. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, because you're talking a lot about the media, uh, social media, and how that plays a role in levels of anxiety, and even thinking about that. So maybe we could just move to a more practical mm -hmm. moment here where we talk about, and if you could break this out even with like uh, kids and, you know, we don't have to do all age groups, but, you know, young kids, maybe teens and, and, and adults, how do they manifest anxiety? What are the things that you're observing uh, as trends in society? And then what do you, if you will, prescribe people do to, to try to deal with these things? I mean, already just 
hearing you define it, and I just, you know, I'm taking some uh, notes on what you're saying here, um, the anxiety being a response to possible negative outcomes. Already, suddenly, anxiety becomes less mysterious because you're identifying, okay, there's a reason that I'm feeling this way, and then I'm sure you could even explain all of the chemical, mm-hmm. uh, the chemical biology that's going into that. Once you start understanding that chemicals are moving differently and different things, different levels are rising, some of that even brings some comfort. But, but so how do you break that out for the different age groups? What are you seeing and, and how do you, I know that's a really broad question, but if you yeah. can kind of highlight some trends and, and <laughs> things that might be helpful, even a person listening who's saying, I have a young person who's struggling with this, or I myself do, I'm an, and I'm an adult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the main ways that we deal with anxiety, uh, if if I'm going, if I perceive that the future is this future situation is threatening, and I don't see that I have the ability to handle that situation, the the natural offshoot of that that equation is I'm going to avoid. I'm going to do whatever I can to avoid that situation. So if it's I think I'm going to strike out in the game, I'm probably not going to play. Um, If it's, um, I don't think that I can succeed at that job, I won't apply for that job. So what we do with anxiety often, the best way I've seen it, I can describe it, is that we tend to shrink our lives. I think you had mentioned that a little bit earlier. We shrink the number of experiences that we have, and we start to shrink our lives. And that's, that's kind of nefarious in two different ways. One is, we don't develop resilience because we're not experiencing things in life. We aren't developing our skills and our abilities. And as Christians, really acknowledging the gifts and abilities that God has given us. Two, um, if you only do three things in your life regularly, well, what if you fail at one of those? Now you failed at 33% of the things that you thought you were good at. Um, there was a, a young girl I worked with. We had a, we had a very good relationship, so I could kind of joke with my clients and we could talk seriously and joke. And we had been talking about her working to expand her group of friends. Uh, but she was anxious about developing friendships. She had two friends. One of her friends ended up uh, going out with my client's boyfriend. So she ended up losing that friend. Mm-hmm. And as we, lo- as we talked about it later, I, I said... You know, in one day, you lost 50% of your friends. Mm. If you had 20 friends, you would have lost 5% of your friends. So the more experiences we have, the more things we have, the, the better able we are then to manage that too. Because so if, if you spend 18 hours a day working here at the university and things don't work out, that's of the pie chart of your life. That is a huge part of the pie chart. Now I'll give you a kind of a, a little deeper example of that. I see this a lot with men. Men struggle as dads. Hey, I'm not sure I'm really successful as a dad. I really don't understand my kids. They're not really listening to me. So they pour themselves more and more into work, which makes them less successful as a dad where they really ought to be because they're avoiding that. And then work becomes more and more important. So now I have to really be successful at work, which then ends up with you spending more and more and more time so that pie chart even becomes more distorted over time. So avoidance is one of the main ways that we you know, cope and deal with anxiety and what that looks like. And one of the things, one of the reasons that anxiety is often connected to depression uh, is that a lot of the things that we look at in terms of 
symptoms of depression are often caused by anxiety. So if I'm anxious and I don't leave the house as much, well, not leaving the house and not engaging in activity is a symptom of depression. If I'm anxious and limit my social interactions, that's also, if, I, if I'm anxious and because of my anxiety, I don't, take, I don't take part in activities I used to take pleasure in, then that's also a symptom of depression, no, no longer taking pleasure in things that you used to take pleasure in. And so it, what ends up happening is, because the fear and the anxiety is pretty pronounced, we do the things, whatever we need to do to, to lessen it in that moment, but long term, it's it's having an impact on on our overall uh, functioning in life. Mm. Does that make sense? It sure does. Okay. Yeah. And I see that now. the The issue is interesting with, and, and this way we'll talk more about COVID too. But I think where parents need to be sensitive to their kids is, uh, we want to, and I'll give you an example of what I do with younger kids. We want to challenge our kids and help them to grow, but we don't want to put them in situations that really firmly believe that they're incapable. Of, of succeeding at. For example, it's not a great way to teach, some people still do this, not a great way to teach your kids how to swim by just throwing them into the into the water, okay? And the frat house Sounds mentality- like early 1900s New yeah, York, exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're going in, Johnny. The frat house mentality that that's how you learned how to swim, yeah. okay, that's not, right. the okay, not the best way to go about it. And so, um, for example, when I work with, with families with younger kids, and say the child is, is really afraid at night and wants to sleep with mom and dad. I'm talking like a three to six year old child, even a little bit older. What I encourage parents to do is give them a card. They can laminate it if they want to. And, I, and it's depending, usually it's a little bit older, usually five and beyond. And it's what I call a get out of jail free card. And so, and they can play that card. The parents get to decide how often they can play that card. But if the child is anxious and wants to sleep in bed with mom and dad for that night, um, because they're scared. If they play that card, mom and dad don't ask any questions. Uh, but they can only play that card so many times. So like, say, for example, if you play that card, you can't play it again for two weeks. So now the child has to ask themselves, like, do I really feel that bad tonight? Because I won't be able, because this is the, what ends up happening is say you have a child who really is incredibly anxious. I'll tell you a funny story about my, my son. Say you have a child who's, who's really anxious and you're telling them, no, you need to sleep in your own bed. You're fine. Everything's fine. But they're but they're really not fine that night. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. This isn't about anxiety, but but similar, where sometimes all the best laid plans of mice and men as parents go wrong. You know, my wife and I decided that we got gotten to the point that we were going to let my son start to cry it out. You know, he's, he's crying at bedtime. We were going in there. We were picking him up. We were trying, you know, we just said, okay, tonight we're going to let him, we, we were extending it. We're just going to let him cry longer and he'll, he'll eventually lay down and fall asleep. Okay, I'm a terrible dad. But he would let him eventually lay down and fall asleep. So we're laying in bed. And, you know, it's if those of you who have children, it is the the worst noise in the world because it, not only is it just a horrible noise, but it's yeah. your child and they're suffering and you, all everything about you wants to go and comfort them. So it's we a great were metaphor, sitting, right? Yeah. yeah. And we were trying not to. Eventually, it just went on too long. We're like, okay, we got to go check on him. Well, we went in, and the poor kid was standing in his crib in the only place that wasn't covered with vomit. Okay, he had gotten sick and thrown up. Now we didn't know that. Okay, right. so we're saying, hey, he's got to cry it out. <laughs> he's got to. Right, right. He's got to fall asleep. He'll be fine. Was the wrong night to be doing that. So I think we 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 want our kids to develop resilience, but it's not a one size fits all. We also want to be sensitive to because you know, like I said, if you. 
if you throw a kid in the pool to teach him how to swim, some kids are going to learn how to swim and some kids are never going to want to go in the water again, right? Where if you teach them how to swim in another way, we have a greater percentage that will probably enjoy the water. So there is a little bit, there's developing resilience and then there's developing resilience to the point that it could be cruel to your child right. in, that, in that case. Mm -hmm. um, Which is a whole great reason for developing strong relationships yeah. with our kids, of course, mm -hmm. because the better we know them, the better capable we'll be of determining which method is best. And one may thrive with a throw-in mm -hmm. water uh, you know, approach and the other may wilt with that. So. Yeah. And that's one of the, you know, the pressures in our society because there's so mm. many pressures as parents that pull us away from our kids. Mm. And you know, like you said, there's no shortcut to understanding who our children are and what goes on inside of them. Uh, especially with younger kids, they don't have a language to describe their feelings. They're living them out. And so we need to be kind of Sherlock Holmes trying to, to understand like, okay, I think, I think he's responding this way because of this. But we need to have experience with them in order to do that. I mean, we do it at work. You know, oh, I think, I, you know, these trends are leading us to make this decision. Why? Because you've got a lot of experience. You know, I think of like one of the things that makes Tom Brady such a great quarterback. It's just unbelievable. He's been doing it so long, nothing surprises him. You can't put a defense on the field that he hasn't seen before. He's already got an advantage in the game because you can't, I mean, athletically, he's not the same as he was 20 years ago. But mentally, he's further along. And so not, there is no shortcut for that kind of experience. And I think that's true even as, as parents to know, hey, I'm living life with my child and I, I'm getting to know them and understanding kind of how they think, what makes them tick, even when they don't. And that's how God is with us. And so we need to do that heavy lifting to, to have those relationships. If we don't, then we're, we're not going to be able to come alongside and, and make those decisions appropriately at the right times. So those are some great strategies for dealing with kids with anxiety. What mm -hmm. about adults or teenagers or later teenagers? I don't know if you want to split those into two groups, but what do you think about for that, that group? Well, you know, I think uh, everything's informative. So speaking as, as a Christian, the best definition of what it means to be a Christian, I heard this years ago, and I really love this definition. I heard this when I was in high school. Becoming a Christian is giving what you know of yourself to what you know of God with the realization that you need him desperately and acknowledging what Christ did for you. What I love about that, that definition is that we give what we know of ourselves to what we know of God. So the process of sanctification is a constant process of surrendering. When I was 16 years old and I became a Christian, I didn't have any finances to surrender to God. I didn't have a wife's health to surrender to God. I didn't have children who their future I needed to surrender to God. So I think that anxiety in many ways is informative. So if we don't avoid it and we look to lean into it to understand what is this really about, um, I've seen people and, you know, COVID is one of these situations that I think it's there's been such a palpable sense of loss that I don't think there's a person alive that I know who hasn't lost somebody or hasn't known somebody who's lost somebody. And so I've, you know, in the work that I've done over the years, I've walked to a lot of people through um, end of life issues. I'm an elder at my church and I've prayed it in hospital rooms. And we surrender things up until we actually surrender our physical existence. And I, I'll be honest with you, I, I've seen people who are 
devout followers of Jesus who are holding on, as somebody as used to say, with the G.I. Joe Kung Fu grip, they're holding on to this life. And you're wondering, and I remember you know, talking to family members and they're saying, why are they holding on? Why are they holding on? They're, they're going to be with Jesus. And then I've known other people who went to Jesus very peacefully. And the thing is, and I don't, I'm not judging those people because I don't know how I'm going to answer that question. When it's my time, I don't know, because that's when we actually, that question of, is everything I've ever believed all these years, is it real? When I close my eyes for the last time, what happens after that? And that's a question that we can say we know the answer to that right now as you and I sit across this table, but it becomes real at different times in our lives, right? And so I think a lot of times the anxiety, so for example, with COVID, I describe it similarly, like I have a fear of heights. It's not really a fear of heights, really have a fear of falling from heights. And I'm really not afraid of the fall. It's the sudden stop at the end that I'm really afraid of. Okay. And so. It isn't, because I, I have a similar fear. Okay, yeah. It's actually the fear of hitting, not the yeah. fear of the falling feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the fear of dying. Like, I'm afraid. Oh, really? Of, yeah. I'm not afraid of the dying. For me, it's the falling. Is it? You know, that sensation okay. of, you know. Anyway, so the sorry, falling sorry. doesn't bother me as much. So Maybe we me, can work together well, here. Because yeah, we'll right? well, right? when it comes to, like, when, when I think about myself dealing with issues of COVID out there, this invisible thing that we could get. I don't really have a fear of COVID. I have a fear of dying right. from COVID, right? I mean, that's that's what my real fear is. I have a fear of dying. And, I, and I'm a devout follower of Jesus, but I still have, and even though, like, I know, I know that heaven's way better than this place, and I also have an understanding of my place on this world. And one of my favorite quotes is from Charles de Gaulle, where he said, the cemeteries are filled with indispensable men. I don't see myself as indispensable. Um, but I'm still struggling. I've struggled with that. And so I think when we get to, like one of the questions we could ask ourselves regularly would be, it's a series of what if questions. So you're interviewing for a new job. Nate's not interviewing for a new job, by the way. So that's, yeah. That's, for, the, that's the next podcast. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for, <laughs> or, or depending on how we do here. Yeah, maybe you, that, you know, but if you were interviewing yeah. for a new job and you were really anxious about it, right. well, what if you don't get the new job? Well, that means like, I, you know, I'm stuck at the job I have and I'm not making as much money. Well, what if you're not making as much money? Well, I've got two kids. They're getting ready to go to college. I'm not sure I can afford to pay for them to go to college. What if you can't afford to pay for your kids to go to college? And you just keep walking those what ifs. Like, what are we really afraid of? It's ultimately death, isn't it? Ultimately death. I think for most people, it's... Being a disappointment to okay. our kids. You know, like, well, my dad paid for college. And so, like, if I can't pay for my kids to go to college... That means I'm not much of it. Like it could, there's any number of those things, but kind of drilling down. But like I was saying before, the tendency of anxiety, because it's it's connected to fear, when the bear is standing over us in the woods, we don't ask the question, why am I afraid of this bear? What do I think is going to happen? No, we are running. Right. And it's that yeah. old joke where you and I start running away from the bear in the woods and, and you go to me like, Matt, we can't outrun the bear. And I go, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just got to outrun you. OK, so but we don't do that. So because anxiety feels like fear, feels very life, feels very threatening. Our tendency is to move away from it rather than to lean into it, to try to understand more about what is this saying about my heart, my mind and, and what really is troubling me. Um, and that's really what we need to do. We need to be able to kind of drill into it a little bit. Now, for some people, it's so debilitating 
that they might need, and Dr. Black talks about this often, that there are certain problems that need to be treated before they can be counseled. Meaning some people's anxiety is so pronounced that they might need medication for a period of time just to even allow them to engage in some of the talk therapy that we would want to do or some of the exposure therapy that we would want to do to expose them to some of the things that they might have anxiety about or fear about so that they can start to, to conquer it. And that's where the medications are similar. They're really the medications we use for depression, the same kind, same medications uh, can help with that. Not a tremendous level of success with medications, but for some people enough that it takes their resting level of anxiety down from a seven or eight out of a 10 down to a four or a five where they can at least engage in that discussion that I'm talking about. And then, because ultimately what you need to be able to do is, if, if you say, well, if I don't pay for my kids to go to college, that means I'm a bad dad. Well, we need, that, that, that's, a, that's a lie. That's a distortion of thinking. And there's all kinds of other reasons why you're a bad dad. Right. Okay, right, it's, right. it's not just that. We don't have to focus just on yeah, that. Yeah, we don't have to focus just on that. No, but, but in order to challenge those distortions, you need to be able to activate your thinking. And I don't know if you've ever experienced you know, fear or anxiety, I have, you're not thinking terribly clearly when you are in the midst of that. Uh, and so getting the, a person to the point where they can actually engage in those discussions is, is crucial. Yeah. Um, with kids, like I was saying before, as adults, we can kind of more so pick and choose the uh, activities we engage in. Sometimes kids can't. And so, you know, say going to school is anxiety provoking. Well, they have to go to school unless they're remote. They have to go to school. If you, if you decided that being around people was too anxiety provoking, you could probably find a job where you could work from home, right? Okay. And you could lean into that. It wouldn't be healthy for you, but you could lean into that. Often kids are unable to do that. So they end up having to face some of those things, which can be good, but it can also for, the time, for a time being be, be very difficult. Does that answer your question about sure kind of does. things we can do? Yeah, I mean, okay. and I hear you giving some really helpful perspective and, and just you even saying lean into the anxiety. I think that's an interesting perspective and also picture that it's you're almost rather than running from it, you're actually facing it, you're analyzing it, you are you're addressing it. Uh, and we could probably even talk about how uh, for many people, probably the struggle of dealing with anxiety does make them, it sounds cliche, but sort of stronger individuals mm -hmm. and probably better apt at dealing with anxiety mm -hmm. and other things because they've gone through that. Yeah. That prompts a question for me though, how does a person know, where's the line between clinical diagnoses and you, you mentioned, for instance, people dealing with depression and kind of a situational depression or however else you would refer to that in a non-clinical way. How do you counsel people? I mean, I guess if they're in your office, they're already dealing with it in a more clinical way, whether yeah. that's you know with medication or just conversation, as you say. But how do you talk, tell a person who is beginning to have some of these feelings and especially they're hearing people talk about uh, terminology and start, they start thinking about anxiety, what process should that person go through? Well, I think one of the questions you would want to ask is, you know, and, and there's two layers of this way of looking at it. One, I typically encourage people to seek treatment when the anxiety becomes overwhelming or unmanageable. Um, 
or it seems to be popping up unexpectedly, you know, and then that would be more like with panic attacks. Um, how do you define unmanageable? Meaning it's, it's having significant impact on your life. Every person's everyday life yeah. is impacted mm -hmm. by this. Okay. Not going to work. Um, now, here's the struggle, though, and that leads to the other side of the equation. It's, in, it's, it's typically, it's often um, subtle. And so what I've seen with people who struggle with anxiety is they start shrinking their life without knowing that they're shrinking their life. It's kind of like the frog in the boiling water, right? So they, they get used to the incremental changes in temperature, the incremental changes in their life. And so, you know, they stop, they, you know, they subtly stop doing some things. And then, you know, when I ask them questions, you know, when was the last time you were out with your friends from college? And they're like, oh my gosh, like I haven't been out in a year and a half. Like, they, it, it's not like they wake up one day and they go, I'm not leaving the house. I'm not hanging out with my friends. I'm not going to work. I'm ordering groceries to have them delivered to the house. I'm that it doesn't happen that way. Typically, it happens very subtly. So sometimes the you get used to those changes, you don't even recognize how much your life has changed. And that's why when people come to see me often, just like the frog in the boiling water, if you turn up the heat, there's like a spike in the heat that makes you realize you're boiling, right? So you either there's like, wow, I didn't realize my anxiety was that severe. Or friends or somebody will you know, encourage you. But a lot of times they don't recognize until they come in and sit down and actually start unpacking it, how much they've already been shrinking their life for months, years prior to coming in. That's where I think if anxiety is long lasting, I use the example, look, if, if you have a headache today, Nate, I'll give you some Advil. If you come to my office every day with headaches for the next six months, at some point I'm gonna say, if you're having consistent headaches every day and we don't know the reason for it, you might wanna to talk to somebody. So if you're having anxiety that's long lasting, uh, what I find with anxiety often too is it doesn't necessarily, in mild, more mild cases, impact the quantity of our life, but it does impact the quality of our life. I'll give you a quick example. I was working with this woman, worked with her for several years. When she first came to see me, um, she was so much in her head, worried about things in life that when she got home from work, she would go around and look at her car to see if there were any dents. She actually believed that it was possible that she could have hit somebody and not even been aware of it because she was in so much in her own head. Several years later, we were talking and she said, you know, I, I still have anxiety. And she's like, I don't think this therapy stuff is working. I said, well, it worked for me. I got a Mercedes. No, um, no I didn't say it. But um, I said, well, okay. Classic doctor yeah. joke. In there. <laughs> like, it's working for exactly. me. I said, well, wait a minute. You are still dealing with some anxiety, but three years ago, you were checking your car to see if you'd hit somebody. Next month, you're going to China on a missions trip. So you're still having some anxiety about the future, but look at your life. And her life had drastically changed. Um, she ended up adopting a child later. I mean, it's just amazing that if she had stayed where she was with the level of anxiety that she had experienced, none of those things would have been possible. So even though she's still experiencing some fear and some struggle in life, it's certainly not the same as it used to be. So I think if people are experiencing, and that's one of the interesting things, is sometimes people are dissatisfied with their lives, but they're dissatisfied with their lives because they've shrunk in their lives for another reason. So I think it's always good to, you know, whether it's going and talking to a therapist, you know, one of the things I always suggest is, you know, 
prayer, reading God's word, and godly counsel. You know, engaging in those those three things. And I think God has hardwired us to be in relationship. And having those people in our lives that can say, you know, Nate, I remember five years ago, you used to go surfing. What happened? Right? That's important. Those people in our lives who have that history with us are, are crucially important. And I think they can often say, hey, I've noticed a change. Because sometimes we may not notice it. But I think it's it's often... Um, you know, I wrote this article the other other week, not about uh, New Year's resolutions. I wrote an article about a New Year's evaluation, you know, to take time to kind of evaluate where am I in my, before you make a resolution to think about where am I? What's going on in my life? What's going on in my relationship with God? What's going on in my relationships with people? How How is my job? To start evaluating those things before you decide to make any steps. And I think it's a good idea to check in, to say, okay, Am I where I thought I'd be five years ago? What's what's changed for the better or the worse? Because I do think anxiety, differently than depression, is sometimes a little bit more insidious in terms of our experience of life. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about COVID. Okay. You've alluded to that throughout. And so there's, I mean, it's probably, I think, fair to say this is a unprecedented mm-hmm scenario and in terms of how that affects people's level of anxiety and probably other mental mental health issues mm-hmm. but our subject today is particularly anxiety so you've alluded to and mentioned a couple of your observations uh, are there any other things that that you think would be worth pointing out about how people have been yeah. affected uniquely during covid yeah i think it's i mean it's interesting you know i was actually having this conversation the other day you know my grandmother was born in 1900 And so she lived through the influenza epidemic, lost people that she knew. And it's interesting. I was kind of musing that I wonder if like 50 years from now, if you and I are still on this earth, our grandkids will be saying, you getting the COVID shot this year? I don't know. Just like we did about the flu shot, which I'm sure like that word flu probably had a very different meaning for my grandmother for the entirety of her life than it did for us. Right? Because we didn't experience that. And I'm hoping for my grandkids that this will that they'll have a very different experience of that word COVID than we will. We will probably forever hear that word, and we can't not think about what we've experienced over these last few years. I think what I see with there's layers of this with COVID. What I see with COVID is not some people have anxiety about the disease itself, and that's I get that, and we've talked about it, you know fear of death and or certainly fear of getting somebody else sick, you know getting your grandmother sick or your dad sick or, um, and I think because it's unseen, you know, you could be walking around thinking like I could be carrying it right now and not know that I'm hurting somebody. That's a terrible thing. It's a terrible burden to carry. But I think what's happened with COVID in terms of increases in anxiety among people and, and especially younger people are kind of what's happened as a result of COVID. So we have schools closed people working from home, uh, people having to quarantine. So for example, you know, my wife changed jobs recently and she's enjoying her job a lot more, but the job she had previously, it's interesting. I, I would say to people like, nobody ever, when they were interviewed, when they were in junior high and they said, you know, what do you, what do you wanna do? I wanna be a data analyst, right? Nobody ever signed up for that, right? And so a lot of our jobs, which one of the reasons why the office was so popular is, a lot of our jobs look a lot like the office. And if you, you know, our job, we go, I don't even know. I mean, I'm not saying this. Please don't don't fire me from Karen. 
I love my job here. This um, is a, a uniquely special place uniquely where special. no work problems exist. No work there. problems at all. Oh, the usual. But the thing is, what made, and, and my wife was actually struggling with, like, she, she described it as like a mild depression. And we had this conversation. I said, well, what, what made work palatable? Not the work itself. It was the community of people. You know, you talk about your weekend, you talk about life and your kids and you celebrate birthdays and you've got a community of people and you did your work. On Zoom, all you're doing is work. There's no hanging out and talking about life. And so we removed the connectedness of work and only all we were left with was the data analyst part that nobody wanted to do. And so those are some of the features that I think have led to more anxiety and more depression, more social isolation, certainly for, for kids who are developing social skills and need to be face-to-face -face with people to develop their ability to interact uh, we removed that, but we left social media, which social media, there's a, a term called social referencing, where you're looking, you're always comparing yourself to people. And what kids do a lot on social media is compare their life to other people's lives. Probably adults too. Adults do, as not right. as much, okay. but we still do it. Like, for example, if you, know, if you fought at Thanksgiving over the yams yeah. and you're on Facebook and you see your Instagram, you see this other family. And they were the Millers looking awesome. Yeah, they look well, great. <laughs> but that was like the, the five seconds that we got everybody to stop fighting to smile, right? right. That's the reality of it, but it feels something different. And so I think a lot of it has been... Um, and then there's one other aspect of it I think is really crucial. So a lot of it has been what we've done. In fact, you know, I fault the Trump administration for this. I certainly fault the Biden administration. When we talk about science, economics is a science, psychology is a science. So, but I didn't see where they had economists up there during press conferences or mental health professionals during press conferences to talk about the impact of this on people. And we've we really, I think, missed a significant opportunity and left people to kind of fend for themselves. So, and then the other problem, one of the best ways to combat anxiety, and this is, I'm gonna go a little into the ether here with this. One of the best ways to combat anxiety is with accurate information. So I'll ask you, Nate, I've asked this of everybody I've talked to recently, where do you go for accurate information about the COVID pandemic? I don't know where to go. No one knows to where to go. I, I have the same answer from everybody I've talked to. No one knows where to go. So if we don't have accurate information, what we're left with, and as Christians, what we're left with, and this is what I've seen, and this is, hopefully this will, be, this will blow everybody's minds to think about it. This pandemic has been a pandemic of our hearts. Because there isn't accurate information, each one of us is led by our heart. I have a more libertarian heart, not any less sinful, although in this country we think libertarian sometimes is a little less sinful. My libertarian heart is just as sinful as my stepmom's heart, who was very fearful and anxious and she was struggling to leave her house during the pandemic. We just, because there's no accurate information, we as, we've all been directed by our hearts. Well, the, you don't need to go more than a couple of pages in the Bible to find out how deceptive our hearts can be. And you see that throughout society where people are really angry with each other. And if you're out without a mask on, you're trying to kill me. And if, you're, if, if you force me to get this shot, that means you're the devil. Like there's all this extreme of positions, uh, which I think without that accurate information, wherever our heart goes, there's no check for it. There is no check for anybody's heart without any accurate information. And I think that's another aspect of anxiety that's, that's also been there. Plus, you have, it's almost as if 
the last couple of years have been a polarization factory. Mm-hmm. You know, everything immediately polarizes and that has an effect on community as well. Yeah. Because maybe things that in the past disparate viewpoints may have been able to come together mm-hmm. a little bit more on or mm-hmm. see one another's side. Uh, not so, it no. seems, in this case. And Again, I'm not a political scientist, but I like to I like politics. I think it, and again, so anybody who knows political science is probably going to mock me and laugh at me, which is fine. I'm a little anxious about that. Um, <laughs> it happened, I think, around the year 2000, where we realized, or at least political consultants realized, that it used to be when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, that the campaigns were really designed to campaign to get independents to vote for candidates. And so independents wanted you to actually accomplish things, and they wanted people to work together. Well, around the year 2000, these political consultants came along and said, a lot of people don't vote, and there really aren't that many independents. And so um, what you need to do is fire up your people to get a greater percentage of your people to go out to vote. That's both Republican and Democrat. If we fire up our people and get them to vote at a higher rate and and actually start to say things that would actually potentially depress the other vote, then we'll win. Well, what was the result of that? Well, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, even Bill Clinton negotiated with a Republican Congress and actually accomplished some things. Now, these political consultants are saying, you don't want to fix immigration, for example. You want to run on the issue. So they're constantly running for re-election. No one's actually interested in solving any of these problems. And I think what we've seen with COVID, and I hope our society changes in some way, to me, I think we've seen with COVID the physical cost of that way of living that's been embedded in our society, where we see the other side as evil and as other. And COVID was here for about five minutes before it became political. And because of that, I don't trust this because this person's telling me. I don't trust it because that person's telling me. Um, And we couldn't come together and fight this war. And we've never actually fought a war as a country this opposed to one another. Um, So I do think our society, I think you're right on that, our society has really changed. Uh, Social media has done that too, where we we tend to spend more time with people that are like us and less time with people that are not like us to the point that we don't even understand how they even exist. Um, And I think that's been insidious as well because we haven't been able to find accurate information. I think there is probably accurate information out there, but we haven't been able to find it because of of this way of living with one another too. Matt, bring this home for us. You're speaking to a person who is struggling with anxiety. Do you have a quick final thing that you want to make sure that every person who is struggling with anxiety hears? I would say especially as we talk to a largely Christian audience, a lot of times people will say that, and, and, and not everybody, I think we've grown a lot in this, but if, you are, if you're struggling with anxiety, that means you don't trust God enough. And when I read those passages about be anxious over nothing, um, look at the birds of the air, and I imagine, maybe this is because I had a good dad, okay? I imagine God sitting on the, on the corner with me of the street with his arm around me saying, look at all these things that I've created. I love you more than them. I'm not mad at you that you're struggling, but there's no need to continue to struggle. And, and so I, this is my view, and people could disagree with me. I don't think... I think it, 
there can be in our anxiety a, 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 a discovery of idols in our lives. That's true. Okay, if I'm holding on to this life, then in some ways I'm going to give, make a strong term. I'm, I'm in, in that way. I'm a functional atheist, right? I'm I'm living as if this is the only life there is, and I think that's a that's the process of sanctification. I don't think God's mad at me. I think that's the natural process of sanctification. But I think a lot of people, especially Christians, don't talk about their anxiety because they have heard messages that somehow, you know, you're not a Christian or you're not Christian enough. Our anxiety doesn't make God any less God. He knows who he is. I don't think he's mad at us. I think he loves us, wants us to work through these things. So my word for anybody out there struggling is go talk to somebody. You're not alone in it. And actually, the interesting thing I find, too, is sometimes even just you ever have those ideas that everything makes sense in your own head. And just saying it out loud, sometimes you go, that doesn't even even saying it out loud with nobody there, you go, that doesn't make any sense. You know, but certainly when we go and talk to somebody else, you know, if, if you were going to ask somebody out to the prom and you say, oh, I, I think she's probably going to say no, so I'm not going to ask her. Well, I think, what did Kevin Durant say? You, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? Like, it sounds ridiculous to say she might not say yes, so that way I'm going to say no for her by not asking her. Like, that's the way we live life. And I think when we talk to other people um, and we get it outside of ourselves, sometimes that, that's incredibly healing. So those are the two things. I think the woman at the well is a good example of the reason why Jesus said you've had five husbands and the man you're living with isn't your husband is he said, I just want to make it clear what we're talking about here. I'm not judging you. You don't need to hide from me. Um, I don't think we need to hide our worries and our struggles from God. Well, this has been a really helpful conversation. Thank you. For, Thanks, Dave. I'm sure anybody listening has learned something. I know um, you've, you've got a great perspective on a couple of things. And maybe someone listening to this is thinking what I am now. It's like free therapy that we're going through here, which means the doctor is in. And I don't know, maybe we could bring Matt back for future podcasts. Sure. So if there is a, a subject that you would like to hear Dr. Miller delve further into, please, wherever you're accessing this podcast, I imagine you're seeing it posted someplace on social media. There are some positive uses of social media, mm -hmm. like accessing this podcast. And uh, comment on there, and we will see that. Let us know um, what you think about what's been shared. We've, we've had a great run here of conversation, everything from politics, political pundits, uh, to, of course, uh, psychology, some great pop culture references, which I have enjoyed very <laughs> thoroughly. Thank you. Um, so if there's a subject related to the realm of counseling, of psychology, uh, maybe even something that you have personally dealt with in your family that you'd like to see a, a subject delved into, feel free to drop that as a comment, and we'll take a look at that and maybe have some more conversations in the future with Matt. But uh, for now... Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm.